This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Dr. James Lesh. James is an urban historian and lecturer in cultural heritage and museum studies. His research explores the theory and practice of heritage conservation in the 20th and 21st centuries. He's also published widely in Australian urban history. Before joining Deakin University, he had previous appointments at the University of Melbourne, University of Sydney and King's College in London. James's latest book, Values in Cities, Urban Heritage in 20th Century Australia, synthesises the history of the Australian heritage movement and the emergence of a professional field and academic discipline for urban and cultural heritage. His research has also appeared in leading academic journals and book collections. He's a regular contributor to public and industry debates on heritage conservation. Welcome to the show, James. Hi, Jess. Hi, Peter. James, can you give our listeners a brief bio apart from uh, what Jess has already uh, said in the introduction? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm a historian by training and I started uh, getting really passionate about history and thinking that it was the thing for me probably about 10 years ago now. And that's when I started exploring and becoming fascinated by heritage issues and the perspective that historians can bring to them. And James, why did you want to become what you are now? I think that passion uh, for history and for heritage and for cities came about, well, when I was young, I was always very interested in in, in history and, and studied history back in high school. But it wasn't necessarily, I think, the path for me, or at least I wasn't sure. But in my early 20s, I took a, uh, about a year off after finishing my first degree and went to Europe and went to all these fascinating cities and incredible places and, and historic sites and, and monuments and memorials. And it was after that that I really wanted to start figuring out how we can go about peeling back the layers and, and understanding these places. Uh, and I spent a bit of time in my undergraduate degree at, in, in the UK at the University of Manchester. And that was my first exposure to how um, how we can use history or understand history to start picking apart the places around us. And I suppose the rest has, has, all, has all come from that. And you've obviously sure. just released your book, um, Values in Cities, Urban Heritage in 20th Century Australia. Is this something that you always wanted to do, writing a book? I didn't know when I, I think for a long time that I that I had a book in me, but it, it really emerged from a lot of little projects that I that I'd started from from almost from ten years ago now. So it's been a, a long journey between developing the book and the idea, and 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 I suppose getting it out there as as a, as one cohesive uh, piece of writing. Uh, what why I wanted to write it was really because when I started. I suppose my PhD, like like many people, I was looking for a, a history of the heritage movement in Australia and trying to understand how people started to relate to the story. Uh, and so I suppose it was then it probably that would be about five, six, seven years ago now that I started to think, well, if there's a there's a PhD here, but there's also a book that can come out of that as well. And that's that's where values and cities came from. One of our previous subjects said we all have a book in us. So there's hope for us yet, Pete. <laughs> Well, James, it's a, a masterful scholarly work, but um, I found the book very, very readable 
and very very relatable as well. It's it's accredited, and I, I think it's going to be the definitive work, um, definitely in Australia, and it might also provide guidance uh, overseas for for other such researchers. But I wanted to ask you, James, heritage policy and controls are extensive in many planning schemes or systems, and they therefore influence many economic decisions and people's living conditions. Why hasn't it been studied? Why hasn't the heritage movement and controls been studied with more rigour? Is it because we're just of the scale of the heritage um, movement or are we just the familiarity with the whole thing? We just got used to it. Why hasn't there been more rigour in the assessment? That's that's a fascinating question, and I think it's always difficult to answer without being a little bit provocative. The thing about heritage for a long time is that it was it was taken to be a good, a public good, an affirmative good, and even having a moral aspect to it. The sense that the more we heritage list, the more places we find as historic and uh, and architectural, I suppose, the better and more sophisticated we are as a society. But over the last, I suppose few years, maybe last decade or two, there's been growing interrogation of really what is happening around heritage, what's the intended and unintended consequences of when we start to apply all these controls. Wow, they've become so extensive, as, you, as you've said, particularly in the inner suburbs of many Australian cities and, um, and in fact, uh, cities across the world that share similar planning systems, that I think now we're beginning to have more conversations about heritage and its relationship to planning but also recognizing the complexity of the conversation is because uh, it's a very multidisciplinary inquiry we need to have the planners in the room but we need the historians in the room and the architects in the room and the the policy people and the community groups as well and, and bringing all these different people together and all these different forms of knowledge and academic knowledge together uh, can lead to really really exciting results and I think that's starting to happen we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. James, does the Australian experience have similarities overseas? Now, obviously, your your book is primarily about the Australian experience, but um, would it be of interest as well to those outside of Australia? Sorry, two questions in one there. When it comes to the heritage movement, there are some fantastic histories that have been published, book-length histories, particularly in the United States and, and particularly in the UK as well. And it's, I think, a familiar story to many people, the battles in, in London over the Eastern Arch or the, the battles in New York over Penn Station, both the, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so there's a broad understanding of this uh, of this history of heritage and, and that those links uh, between those, I suppose, particularly between London and New York in the, in the, in, in the heritage movement. When I was looking for histories of the heritage movement, though, aside from the uh, really the uh, US and the UK, other countries, um, quite similar countries to Australia, including New Zealand and Canada, don't actually have uh, publications of this kind at all, don't have histories of this kind at all. And 
And I'm not sure entirely why there's been that that absence, but I think what we see in Australia is, is a story perhaps is more similar to a place like Canada or a place like New Zealand. And that's because of the, the questions that come about when you're in uh, a settler colonial society where, where people uh, came and invaded and, and then colonised and then constructed and what it means to have heritage places in that context. Mm. And coming back at the start of the book, uh, Graham Davidson, I think in his foreword to the book, states, heritage conservation was a latecomer to Australia. Now, the question for you, James, is this part of the Australian cringe, not val valuing what we did and comparing ourselves as less, less worthy than, uh, uh, than elsewhere, or uh, are we being a bit too hard on ourselves? Uh, so would you talk a little bit about the Australian cringe, which some listeners might not understand, and also who was Graham Davidson? Sure, yeah. So uh, I'll start with with, with Graham Dave, Davidson. And uh, he's a now Professor Emeritus at um, Monash University, and was someone who wrote uh, excellent and award-winning uh, histories of Melbourne and of Australia as a social historian, a public historian, uh, wrote a fantastic book on the boom period in Melbourne in the 1880s, what we call the, the marvellous Melbourne period. But he was also one of the first people to actually say that, that heritage in Australia is a, 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 an interesting area enough of inquiry that it should be researched, but also at the same time, uh, he became very involved in from really the 1970s onwards when legislation is first passed in Victoria uh, for Melbourne. And so he becomes one of the the earliest, or in fact, the earliest uh, historian that's being involved in heritage and doing so from uh, from the university setting. He also write, wrote an early history of the heritage movement in Australia, a, a really interesting book chapter uh, in a book from 1991 called A Heritage Handbook. And he really had this belief that uh, heritage was about community and history was about community and people should be empowered to engage with their heritage places around them. But he also notes in, in some of his work and more generally this idea of the, of the cultural cringe. And uh, the cultural cringe is something that came up particularly in post-war Australia in the 1950s and 60s. And it was this sense that Australian places or Australian culture and Australian society and Australian history couldn't have value or didn't have value in comparison to places elsewhere. It's this, this uncomfortableness in recognising achievement um, in the Australian context. And so there's been this uh, dominant myth in Australia, but it's also, I think, something we've seen, in, it happens in other, often in settler colonial countries like New Zealand or, or like Canada, where there's this sense that um, that the places and the sites and the and the, the monuments and, and so on are less important and, and less valuable than things that were constructed elsewhere, just inherently from being on the, um, the, the I suppose, the, the periphery of the world as opposed to, a, you know, a centre like London or New York. James, it's unfortunate. Um, probably a couple of podcasts ago I recommended a great documentary that I saw during Melbourne International Film Festival, uh, The Lost City of Melbourne. I'm not sure if you saw that one. Yes, yes, I did. Did you have any contributions to it? I wasn't quite sure whether you did. I couldn't remember saying your name, but you may have. Uh, no, I, I wasn't directly in the lost city of Melbourne, but a, a number of colleagues were, including Graham Davison and, and Robin O'Neill, uh, who wrote a fantastic book about um, Wheel and the Wrecker, a famous wrecking company yeah. in Melbourne, um, and and as well as uh, Rowan Story, as well, an excellent um, uh, architectural historian. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting just based on that conversation we're having, um, you know, us taking for granted our our heritage protection that we have today and and the value of places, but obviously it wasn't always that way. That's that's right. And the Lost City of Melbourne's is fantastic in the way it brings together this incredible archival footage and and really uh, gets us to to see the Melbourne that once was and the sorts of places that were demolished. I think what's so interesting though about the Lost City of Melbourne is that that the stories would be so familiar to uh, anybody uh, who has an intimate knowledge of, of cities in Europe or, or in much of Europe or a knowledge of American cities too, where there was this really drive to demolish uh, and rebuild, particularly in the in the 50s and 60s, and, and a lot of 19th century heritage went as a result. James, the early conservationists focused on significant buildings and many were many of those people were scorned as being against progress and perhaps toffs. Um, I'm thinking of John... Uh, overseas in the UK, like John Betjeman, and maybe here, um, Barry Humphreys um, was also, you know, putting an oar in into the water about it, and the early National Trust Associations. But then it broadened out the uh, conservation movement. Can you, uh, to be more inclusive, can you talk a little bit about that change? There is this. There is this really interesting, um, I suppose, prehistory to heritage before it was embedded within the planning system in the 1970s onwards, and that's right. And and so, from the 19 in the 1940s and 1950s, the Australian National Trust movement is established. Uh, it's some of the earliest national trusts in the world, other than the original trust in England and Wales, after which um, the Australian National Trusts were modelled. And from their establishment immediately, they're seeking to have identified and to conserve really the most uh, significant public buildings and, and some grand residences uh, and theatres, uh, boulevards, and other places which they believe, the trusts believe, need to be conserved, uh, it, it even amidst the, the, the post-war desire for progress and change and demolition. And in fact, they have some uh, regulatory backing for that because Australia, like the UK, uh, has from its earliest town planning legislation requirements to protect uh, significant sites. The thing is, what was considered to be significant, you know, for historic and, and architectural reasons, uh, was very uh, narrow. It was those limited public and national and grand buildings. The big shift in the 1970s is the, I think, the democratisation of heritage. Uh, and that comes about to really change the focus from those uh, individual ground monuments to more everyday places, to industrial places, to to, re to residential areas and neighbourhoods as well. Uh, and so we really see a greater breadth of, um, of places identified, uh, I suppose, as important and the legislation, the planning legislation in particular, then catches up to capture those sorts of places too. I just wanted to read a short extract from your book and just wanted to get you to talk to this. Um, the extract is, the main change was not in the city, but in how people looked at it and loved it. Any thoughts? I think that's right, because for, let's say you, if you're walking around a, a city today or you're walking around a city in, in previous periods, the the cities have, have changed, but at the same time, much of the built fabric remains the same. And so there's this, people in effect have these kind of a new approach to seeing the city around them and seeing these all these new 
places in these areas as being of importance. I think a, a really good analogy is uh, in, over the last couple of years, we've, with COVID-19 and the pandemic, we've spent more time than ever in our local neighbourhoods and our local areas. And, and as a result, we've brought, I suppose, new perspectives on, on our environments and, and what's important about them. It was the same way in the, in the 60s and 70s generation, and, and particularly with the, uh, with the advocacy that occurs at that time. Uh, there is this new drive to uh, to see places as, as important, uh, to overcome that sort of cultural cringe, to redefine what, what progress is and to bring heritage uh, really as a central component uh, of the city and, and eventually of, of development and planning as well. James, you talk about the democratisation of the heritage movement. What were, and that all sort of came together in the 70s, can you talk a little bit about the you know, the elements at play that sort of led to this acceleration? Yeah, so there were a number of, 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 I suppose, things kind of came together at the same time among that, the early baby, the baby boomers and that, and that particular generation of the uh, new environmental movements and, and social movements and, and land rights and Indigenous black rights movements, uh, participatory planning movements, uh, anti-freeway movements and so on. And they all kind of coalesce together to say, well, we're not happy with how cities have been planned and designed and approached in the past. And, and we want to go about a new way of doing that. When it comes to heritage and the heritage story, which kind of comes through at the similar at the same time, is, is I think intimately linked to all those other uh, those other factors. What's what ends up happening is that there's a there's this there's a this massive uh push for development. From the late 90s, well, during the long boom in the late the 60s into the early 70s, where more and more and more places are being demolished by um, by uh, demolition firms and and new these new uh, what they what they called filing cabinet buildings were being constructed. These modern office blocks, many of which today are are heritage listed, and so there was a desire to say, well, you know, enough is enough. Uh, and like in Australia cities, in cities all across the world, there is this, this push for conservation. This, this period is actually now being called the, the heroic period of conservation for the strength of community advocacy around heritage places. So the format takes in Australia is the coming together, particularly of um, resident groups, of single site advocacy bodies, of the union movement, of some progressive architects and planners, who come together and say, well, we want to see these range of places conserved. This drive for, for demolition in the name of progress is, is not uh, a way that we see as a way to, that we want to see our, our cities planned and, and developed in the future. The big tool that they had, which made this, this shift so successful in Australia, was the Green Band. Uh, and the Green Band was a really remarkable form of Australian heritage advocacy which, in, which was involved the union movement on behalf of community advocates saying that, okay, uh, we're, no, we're not going to allow development on a building which a, a green band has been placed on uh, and placed on on behalf of the community and the community's request. And that saves a huge number of buildings across Australia's cities. So in the past, a, a union uh, would have uh, applied, applied a black band on a site because they, um, for improved conditions and, 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 and labour-based advocacy, but by colouring the, the, I suppose, the old, the black band into a green band, it said, well, actually, the union movement also has a role in environmental advocacy too. And the most famous person involved in that in, in Sydney in particular is, is Jack Mundy, who's a bit of a hero in, up, up, in, up in Sydney. 
Indeed. And James, one of the things that I kept racking my brains out when I was reading your book, the title in your book is Values in Cities and how values influence heritage perceptions. Uh, now, values is a, a pretty broad um, pretty broad concept. Can you just sort of narrow it down and, and what you meant by when you reference values? Sorry, it's a very clumsy question, but I hope, you, <laughs> I hope you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think why on earth is the book called Values and Cities? And and the and the the reason for that is because today within the the profession of heritage that comes out of the 1970s, that you know, the heritage industry made up of conservation architects and and specialist historians and heritage consulting firms and archaeologists and interpretation firms, they'll talk a lot about values uh, and and significance as the guiding principle uh, for heritage management. So in, in effect, we need to find why a place is significant, what values and historic and aesthetic and architectural and social and, and spiritual and economic and developmental and as, uh, artistic and so on and so forth does a place have, and that guides its management. And so I became very interested in why that was the, I suppose, the jargon, the lexicon, the, the, the management model that was being used by the heritage industry and working backwards to figure that out. And so that's where the name came from, values and cities. And what I observed in my research is there's this, there's this, I suppose, an inflection point. Uh, again, it occurs around the 1970s into the 1980s, where there's a shift from implicitly valuing places, because uh, in some ways, uh, elite group and members of society, tastemakers think that they're really important to this shift to this idea of what are the values of places and, and how can we identify those in a more kind of uh, rationalised way. And so uh, that's where the, the title comes from and, and because it really values today is the guiding, uh, guiding lens which we use in heritage decisions. And James, presumably values as we as we speak to them about um, cities or as they apply to cities, change over time. So what shapes values? Is it prosperity? So what, what I'm really interested in exploring in the book uh, is the way in which this idea of the values of places and, and the values of cities evolve and change over time. And I think that these, these values at some places are, are more dynamic, at some places they're more fixed. So, for example, we might see a, a place like a parliament house or, or like a theatre as having, uh, on, uh, I, I suppose, a more enduring importance. While we might see another, place, another area like a, um, a residential neighbourhood or, a, or a more of a social place like a, a pub or club as having more values and ideas associated to it that really change over time. And so I think some places are more dynamic in the ways that we relate to them, I suppose more social in the ways that we relate to them, whilst others have a more kind of fixed sense of, of how we as a community relate to them. But the ultimate point is that, and this is what I kind of get to in the book, is that it's society and our, and our relationship as, as a community and as communities to heritage places which ultimately form and create their value. Uh, there's no inherent value in a heritage place, rather it's really about our attachment to places. And as communities change, of course, our attachment to places will change with it. Mm, very vexing question, situation, isn't it, James? That uh, history history is uh, very much a modern interpretation. Um, but I wanted to 
you know, one thing, James, I've, I've talked about the borough charter about a million times in my work, and I never realised until reading your excellent book that it's it's based on borough, which is a small old mining town in South Australia. Can you briefly give our listeners an idea of what the borough charter is and why it was important? So the borough charter has been referred to as the heritage bible of Australia, uh, literally given out uh, on the mountain of, of Barra back in, uh, in in the late 1970s. And so what the Borough Charter was, was providing a way for Australian Australians and particularly Australian heritage managers for that new industry that was coming about in the late 1970s to have a model or an approach that they could use in order to determine what kinds of places were important and then how they were going to go about working on them. So before the before the, the publication of the Barra Charter, uh, co- countries across the world had predominantly used, when they when they did refer to heritage principles and, and guidelines, they would use something called the, uh, the Venice Charter uh, that was, uh, again, developed in Europe in the early 60s. But the Barra Charter becomes this interpretation of the uh, Australian interpretation of the Venice Charter uh, and a way in which that, that values model, which I mentioned earlier, that, that We'll use the values of places to guide how we conserve them. Well, it was the Borough Charter, which was the the kind of key catalyst for that uh, particular approach. Uh, And it was endorsed at the time by all the players, all the emerging players in heritage from the National Australian Heritage Commission to the new state authorities for heritage that were coming out to local councils, to industry bodies, to to everybody. And and the Borough Charter is is something that we um, that we still use today. It's been revised, but it's still used today in the heritage sector, which is why you'd be familiar with it. And its principles have also become um, globally influential as well uh, in the development of guidelines in other other countries too. Well, thanks for giving us that explanation. I'll rely on that in future, James. Um, in 1962, this is in your book. You mentioned this. There was a, a writer in Melbourne who wrote for one of the main newspapers, Keith Dunstan under the pseudonym Batman, uh, and he recorded a timeline of how places become valued by the public. And he said it takes 30 years for a certain type of building to become a monstrosity, 60 years for it to become quaint, and 80 years before it becomes lovable to be preserved at all costs over the shed blood of the historical societies. Can you talk to this sort of timeline and... Is it a sort of a generational thing that we reject the previous generation and are romantic about the preceding generations? Thoughts? I find it so funny that uh, Keith Dunstan, who's who was a very yeah very famous writer in in post-war Melbourne uh, and a, a critic at times of, uh, of of modern architecture, quite irreverent in his outlook, manages to uh, capture. In, in just a, a, a single sentence, this idea of, of heritage and, and how communities relate to it and really centralising uh, community perspectives. And so in heritage, we can talk about age value, this sense that uh, as a, a place becomes older, uh, it it becomes the sorts of place that we wish to keep. And that's really what he's getting at when he's talking about this this 30, 60, 80 timeline uh, for heritage places. And I think in some ways that really does ring true that 
that older places and say in the Australian context, particularly 19th century places are where most uh, heritage efforts and listings are, are, are dedicated. But I think it's also true, and I think as you said, that every generation has its own approach and way of, uh, of, of, of thinking about its heritage places and its environments and, and particular architectural styles. So, uh, for example, the, the, the moderns of the 50s and 60s and modern architects at that time really loved Georgian architecture or anything that looked Georgian. So anything from the kind of late 18th to early 19th century. And they thought Victorian architecture of the, you know, the mid to the early 20th, mid 19th to the early 20th century were, were monstrosities and ugly and horrible. Uh, and then by the by the next generation starts to embrace the Victorian and the, the generation after that embraces the industrial and starts to embrace uh, uh, early 20th century Edwardian and Federation architecture in Australia. And, and now today we can see over the last decade or two the real embrace of, of modern architecture. But it, through this process, it's not as if we stopped valuing, say, today the Victorian or the Georgian or the, the Federation architecture, but rather we accumulate particular... Uh, baggage is this particular elements and relations to heritage places and it becomes this kind of moving thesis this evolutionary process I think that's what makes heritage so exciting is that every generation has the opportunity to redefine uh, what it thinks is important and what it wants to carry itself in the future and in what way it wants to do that and James Helen Proudfoot was another significant contributor to the heritage movement over many decades um, but she was critical of the contemporary approach to heritage management in a speech she gave in 1991, where she stated in part, we must take care that we do not allow our towns and cities to become so rigid, rigidified that every project is so delayed that we kill initiative while we ponder about context and cultural significance. You've obviously pondered this issue. Do you have any thoughts? Helen Proudfoot was one of many trailblazing women in the Australian heritage movement. And she made this comment when she received the highest award that could be given by the Planning Institute in New South Wales in 91. And her frustration was that was this process, these planning processes, in her view, and in this case, particularly around heritage, which she'd been working on in Sydney since the late 50s, were really... Uh, preventing cities from evolving and developing. And so on the one hand, you have Proudfoot, who is one of the most longstanding champions of, of heritage protections and the heritage movement in the Sydney context from within the planning profession. But on the other hand, she's coming out and, and making this criticism of the process. And so I think ideally, in the, in the ideal world, perhaps we wouldn't even need heritage protections. Uh, heritage would be something that we all valued, that architects and, and planners understood, and something that was embedded and embraced throughout projects in a myriad of tangible and intangible ways. On the other hand, Proudfoot is suggesting here that we've gone so far in terms of having so many protections and such a rigid process, it's actually preventing what she would think of as another kind of heritage. Um, the heritage, I suppose, of, of urban development and change from occurring. And so I think ultimately we're talking here about this balance. If we're going to have heritage protections, that's that's okay and that can be supported. And I think Proudfoot, broadly speaking, would, would have, was supportive of the heritage protections. I mean, she she wrote many of them. But at the same time, recognising that, that it can be at times a blunt instrument and that we need to be not too controlled in the way that they're, that they're developed, but rather work towards a broader culture of heritage. Very, very interesting, that balance. And 
Another another aspect, James, is that heritage places, typically in the inner city of major cities, are overwhelmingly gentrified and are extremely wealthy, seemingly far removed from battler suburban Australia. Was this an unintended consequence uh, and of the heritage movement? And also the amount of resources devoted to um, maintaining heritage controls and um, provisions. Is that taking resources away from other areas? Big question, just a, just a brief answer, thanks. When it comes to heritage protections, I, I think if you look at council budgets and so on, it's actually would be quite a small proportion of, of, of budgets that are, that are, that are, put, are put in place and, and many areas don't have um, don't, don't have uh, advanced heritage studies even across Australia, even after so many decades. Uh, but in terms of that that broader question of, of of gentrification and heritage, it's it's really a vexed issue because the heritage protections all came into place in our in a, in our inner suburbs when they were still considered to be uh, slum areas, and so we we basically put these these protections on on the communities that call for them back uh, at a time when uh, heritage these places these these neighbourhoods were really under threat. And they can be quite restrictive in the way that Proudfoot describes. And so I think there really is a, a tension today in how do we achieve inclusive and welcoming and, and inviting and, and uh, diverse areas while at the same time retaining what's most important. And I'm not sure whether we entirely have that, that balance right. James, your book suggests that heritage conservation is an ongoing process, and that the measures so far adopted um, uh, subject to subject to uh, the values and the cultural significance at the time, but those aren't settled. So it's an ongoing process. Is do, do you see this as a healthy thing that heritage isn't settled essentially? I think that we have to approach heritage in a in a very, in a dynamic way. The challenge that we have is that many of the rules that, let's say, the Borough Charter or the uh, heritage uh, protections and heritage listings get recorded, and once they're recorded, they're in, in effect fixed and they're rarely reviewed. And then the guidelines that planners use and that architects use to implement them similarly uh, largely encourage the retention of the buildings as is in a kind of very fixed sort of way, often almost treating heritage fabric as, as septic, as something that can't be touched and, and, and worked with. Now, this, I think, is really causing a, a, a challenges today um, as we seek out uh, our, our cities to, to, to densify, to, to allow them to evolve, particularly because those heritage neighbourhoods are some of the most desirable, well-connected and, and wealthiest areas in our cities. And so I'm I, I'm of the view that we need to keep evolving heritage towards different uh, and towards contemporary outcomes and towards contemporary imperatives. And so for this, me, this means uh, unifying together the uh, questions of economic and social and environmental sustainability with with the, with the heritage movement and with the with heritage approaches. Now, this might require, I suppose, a bit more of a flexible approach in terms of how we address fabric, but at the same time, it might enable more creative, more creative and design-led solutions uh, for heritage areas and heritage places than we've, we've 
allowed in the past. So I'm I'm all for innovation in heritage practice, not seeing it as a as a fixed thing with ascribed attributes to places that can't be touched, but rather see it as as part of uh, part of a conversation for our evolving cities uh, and our evolving neighbourhoods. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And just changing gears slightly, James, you contributed a chapter to the book Urban Australia and Post-Punk, Exploring Dogs in Space. One of the authors was David Nichols, who we interviewed in uh, PX38. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and Dogs in Space? Dogs in Space was a, a, a really fun project that uh, that a few of us worked on, uh, yeah, a year or two ago now, led by led by David Nichols. So that it was based around this, I, I suppose, cult movie that was released in 1986 called um, called Dogs in Space, and it was a fictionalized account of the post-punk music scene in 1978 in Melbourne. Uh, and it had in it as its lead star, uh, Michael Hutchins of, of In Excess. Now, where I got interested in, 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 the, um, in the book was thinking about the house. And it's, there's this house in it that is really the focus of the, um, of the film. And it's called 18 Berry Street in Richmond. And by chance, the house happened to be uh, heritage listed actually back in the 1970s. Uh, and it was the real house, 18 Berry Street, that was also where the movie was set in 1986. And so the, the, the funny thing was then that they actually present this, the uh, they present the neighbourhood that 18 Berry Street is in. So this is in Richmond. And they present it uh, and they try and get the house looking like what it looked like in 1978. But what had actually happened in the meantime in those eight years is that the this neighbourhood and this street and this house had actually been gentrified. So they actually had to go back and, I suppose, peel back the layers of conservation on the site, on the building, um, to make it look like it was still 1978 and the share house that um, that was going to be that was used uh, in terms of the movie uh, based on um, based on this, this fictionalized band and the, and the Hutchins character. James, I went back for homework and I asked Jess to watch this movie. I'd, of course, I'd seen it before, and I remember that not seventy eight in Melbourne, but I remember times after that, and they absolutely trashed the house in the movie. And uh, what you're saying is that they—that's quite incredible. They peeled it back, as you say. Um, does that does that movie have any resonance for you on a personal level, in terms of you, you know you're living in something like a shared house and uh, student days? Does that does it come back to you? It it, it does. I with, yeah, from my experiences in share houses, I, I, though I never lived in a um in a terrace house, um, it it, it does that kind of fun experience of um of of uh, yeah of communal living which kind of comes out and comes out but at the same time it's really this time capsule back to I suppose the 70s and back to the 80s too at, at a time where there were share houses in 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 these inner city neighborhoods uh at, at the same time as the heritage projections are first coming in so if we talk about you know Richmond and dogs in space or um uh Things like Monkey Grip, Helen Garner's book in Carlton, uh, 
in another in a suburb of Melbourne, not far from from Richmond and near the University of Melbourne. We're seeing this this it, through fiction, um, the evolution of the heritage movement and the, of these sites being the kind of places of the kind of cultural milieu of that time. And and today, I don't know. Perhaps in some ways, because so many of the um, the share houses of my generation were 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 later houses, say of the of the post kind of post war Creambrook frontier houses. I don't know whether whether once there's a, a fewer and fewer of them left, and, and there's nostalgia among my generation, whether perhaps they'll become um, something that we see as heritage as well. It, it seems it seems a long, long, long distant era, doesn't it, James? That that. that what monkey grip portrayed and dogs in space it's hard to reconcile that sort of um uh free free uh type of lifestyle with with what goes on now in, in those places these enabled neighborhoods like Carlton and richmond as you say yeah which are which are hyper gentrified um absolutely and and to to walk around them and, and imagine that Heritage protections were were once necessary in order to conserve their uh, their character um, boggles the mind. When today these are homes that sell for for millions of dollars, and um, and many homeowners value the the heritage features or at least the heritage facades of these houses, and and wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't even consider the idea of demolishing them, but would rather seek to seek to keep them and accentuate particular particular aspects of the of the of the buildings. Now, James, we're coming to the end of the interview now. Just wanted to finish up on um, what is on the horizon for you professionally. Have you got another book in you? <laughs> we'll, we'll see about another book, but the the most most interesting project I've been working on um, this year has been with uh, a local municipality in in Melbourne, um, which which used to be called the City of Moreland, and I worked with the this council on exploring the history of its name as part of conversations that had already begun about the links between its name and uh, and colonization and particularly slavery. And so I did it, I, I was, I've been collaborating with, with the council on exploring the first land sales in the area. And, and what ended up coming out of the research was that the, the, the Moorland was named after a Jamaican slave plantation uh, and it was also the land purchases were paid for by a couple of other slave plantations. Uh, in the end, that um, that that work informed the council's decision to work with uh, with community groups and particularly indigenous representatives to to rename the council. And uh, it was renamed, uh, I think, a month or two ago to the city of Marybeck, uh, an indigenous word. And so that was a really exciting. Uh, historical project but also one towards I think um starting to to decolonize uh our cities and starting to um to centralize uh, indigenous perspectives and, and naming practices as well very interesting James um has rings of 1984 I'll just throw it in as a skeptical um outsider on the whole thing renaming places and reassigning places I understand the the arguments both ways but that's for another podcast. And now we're now we're at Podcast Extra, Culture Corner. Um, something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners. I was actually going to talk about the lost city of Melbourne. Oh, good well, on you, well, Jess. Well, lucky we haven't both got the same recommendation today. <laughs> that's amazing. 
Anything else, James, you can throw in there? I mean, obviously, um, monkey grip, uh, dogs in space, we've talked about those, but uh, other things you might be of interest to our listeners? Now, now I'm having a think. I had a, I had a whole spiel prepared. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm well, still in your thunder there. <laughs> That's yes. okay. I'll, I'll jump in. Um, yes, yes. You want got, podcast extra? I've got two, um, not related to planning at all. Um, one's a movie, um, King Richard, which is the film about um, Richard Williams, uh, Venus and Serena's father, and um, predominantly Venus's career. Um, it's actually a really interesting movie, and obviously, um, it's it's been sort of couched in controversy because of the whole Will Smith. Um, slap incident at the Golden Globes but um, apart from that it's a really good movie so I highly recommend that um, and the second one is yoga I've taken up yoga again the last couple of weeks and it's been really really good um, I'm finding myself actually falling asleep in the middle of the classes which is probably a good sign Jess you're the, probably the most chilled person I know so I think if, <laughs> you, don't, you don't really need yoga to, to chill any further. I feel James, like I do so that's good to know. <laughs> no you only shout at me Jess you can only, that's, that's fine. James anything that comes to mind for Podcast Extra? I've just um, finished watching The Bear uh, a TV series and it's um, it's set in Chicago and the Chicago food scene. It's about a, a, a chef. He comes back to his sandwich shop um, of his family after uh, his brother dies. And it's this very uh, intense and incredible portrait of, of Chicago and, and of, the, um, of the food scene as well. I highly recommend it. Right. Well, what well, just, you, I, well, I've got the, um, going back in history, The Legend of Ben Hall. It was an Australian movie about the Australian bushranger. And that, um, he was a bushranger in the 1860s in uh, mid-southwestern New South Wales. And I'm also watching the making of that movie, which is probably it, it, a bit like your book, James. The amount of work that goes into these projects is astounding. And um, once you just get, get a small glimpse into that world about the making of the movie and getting the authenticity right. It's it's incredible. So I, for, for our listeners, I would recommend The Legend of Ben Hall and on YouTube, The Making of the Legend of Ben Hall and, of course, Monkey Grip and Dogs in Space. Dogs in Space, James, is a bit of an acquired taste, do you think? I'd say so. Uh, it's it's not the necessarily the easiest watch, but I think it has a, a fantastic soundtrack and I think particularly for Melburnians there'll, there'll be plenty in there of um of the city that will be so familiar and yet kind of uncanny and a bit different as well. James, Probably a nice talk- um a nice segue as well Pete into um, one of our upcoming podcasts did you want to mention that? Uh, is that about the Bushrangers? Yeah. Yes yes well we're, we're hoping James to interview um, one of Australia's uh, best bushranger experts um, and we will find a link to city planning and regional development in there's that, always a james. link we're, never we're, worry we're, about that well we love our magic james but thanks so <laughs> much for um coming along today readers um the book is um outstanding uh and we'll have links to on our website so it's values in cities urban heritage in 20th century australia And you've heard the author today, James Leash. So thank you so much, James, for coming along and appearing on the podcast. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.